Welcome to Cato. I apologize that we're starting a little late. Uh, I was just rushing back from the Supreme Court, uh, which itself started late, so, you know. Um, which is kind of apropos, given that the topic today is uh, that well, the title of the of the presentation of the forum is why the Supreme Court matters in a presidential election year, um, and I, I picked this title because the book it's not the title of the book that Professor Gary uh, wrote, um, but I picked this title because his book um, talks about where the Supreme Court went wrong and how it continues to go wrong in interpreting the structural provisions of the Constitution and uh, the Bill of Rights. So it much depends on what kind of justices are on the Supreme Court and how they uh, perform their, their judicial duty. Uh, I'll let uh, Professor Gary talk about the book. I won't uh, go into that, but let me give a brief introduction to our, our panelists. Uh, first of all, Patrick Gary is a professor at uh, the University of South Dakota. He has a JD and PhD in constitutional history from University of Minnesota. Uh, before coming to South Dakota, Professor Gary was a partner with the third largest law firm in Minneapolis. He was also a research scholar at the Freedom Forum Media Studies Center and visiting scholar at Columbia University Law School. Uh, Professor Gary is a contributor to the Oxford Companion to the United States Supreme Court, the Encyclopedia of the Supreme Court, and uh, the Oxford Companion to U.S. History, and has published nine books. Um, Very happy to have him present his latest one. Thank you. Thank you, Ilya. It's very nice to be here at the um, Cato Institute, and uh, seeing how I'm from South Dakota, I'm probably one of the few people that can say uh, uh, I'm very much enjoying the weather here in (laughs) Washington, D.C. It's uh, quite a nice change. We're on spring break, so I feel as if I'm on my spring spring vacation. Uh, As Ilya mentioned, uh, uh, I want to talk today about the role of the uh, court, uh, particularly in this presidential election. It's obviously playing an important role, and it's expected that uh, the next president may have several uh, appointments uh, to the court. Uh, I think one of the reasons that the uh, court has become so politicized, so controversial in in, uh, recent years, uh, involves this charge of judicial activism, particularly in the area of individual rights. And of course, that becomes uh, important and controversial because any time a court strikes down some kind of legislation on individual rights grounds. You have essentially an undemocratic court uh, trumping the democratic will of the uh, legislatures. Well, the uh, normal explanation, I think, for this uh, idea of judicial activism involves the particular ideology of individual justices. In other words, the justices are becoming, assert themselves in in a kind of activist way because of their Uh, political uh, or uh, other ideologies. Um, And indeed, this may be a reason. I think uh, it can't be discounted. But in my book and what I want to talk about today, I uh, assert the argument that there may be more of an institutional reason for this, uh, as you may call it, individual rights activism. Um, Not only an institutional uh, reason, but perhaps that the the current um, activism may almost be predetermined from previous doctrinal decisions the court has made, uh, decisions in areas uh, not immediately relating to uh, individual rights. And these decisions uh, reach back to uh, and had their roots during the New Deal era. Well, as you know, the New Deal 
uh, was in response to the Great Depression, a, a, a very cataclysmic event in our nation's history. 25% of the population was unemployed, 40% of the corporate businesses uh, uh, were, had failed. Uh, and so FDR came in with a New Deal agenda, which looked primarily uh, exclusively to the national government. And a great change occurred uh, within the uh, political landscape. So what, what was happening is that the New Deal uh, nationalized politics, looked uh, to the national government to provide relief, to do things that the state governments had previously done. And not only was it looking to the national level, but it was also looking primarily to the executive level. So it was strengthening um, uh, the executive branch, strengthening the national government uh, in areas and to do things that the states had, had formally done and it was looking to provide a very activist uh, and strong central government. In reaction to this, the court initially was resistant and struck down uh, legislation, uh, struck down New Deal legislation, uh, uh, both trying to retain the old Federalist uh, landscape, in other words, trying to retain uh, a certain degree of state power and not giving this state this kind of power over to the national government, as well as trying to retain a more uh, traditional separation of powers and not letting sort of the, the, um, the legislative branch uh, give over or delegate powers to the uh, executive branch. Uh, well, the story, though, as it goes, is the court then uh, switched um, in, in 1937 after the 36 uh, presidential election in which President Roosevelt introduced his court packing plan. And so we have the uh, rather famous uh, line, uh, the switch in time that saved nine. And then the court, uh, starting in 1937, began approving the New Deal legislation, which it had previously struck down. And in doing so, of course, uh, it abandoned uh, the enforcement of the structural provisions of the Constitution. By structural provisions, I mean federalism and separation of powers, uh, for instance. Uh, it... it uh, uh, no longer um, uh, enforce federalism to the degree that it wanted to sort of closely guard state and local autonomy from federal encroachment. Um, it relaxed the non-delegation doctrines and, and, and hence sort of relaxing uh, more strict uh, separation of powers uh, concerns. Well, these structural provisions previously really had been at the heart of the constitutional scheme. Uh, uh, as structural provisions, they really related to the organization of our government. Now, federalism relates to a kind of vertical organization. You have a, an area of federal authority, and then you have below that an area of state authority. At the same time, separation of powers relates to a kind of a head and his horizontal organization in which you have so the three branches, judicial, executive, and legislation, and legislative and the uh, separation of powers keeping those three um, uh, uh, separate and uh, in check to some degree. Well, besides organizing government and providing a kind of architectural framework for government, uh, these structural provisions, federalism and separation of powers, also had a very important role in preserving liberty. Uh, liberty was to be achieved uh, under the framers' uh, scheme by limiting government and providing various checks on government. We've all heard of separation of powers and checks and balances, how that works to check government, as well as the vertical uh, uh, checks and balances then in terms of the states providing a check on the federal government. Um, and so, therefore, uh, according to the uh, framers, uh, you would preserve limit liberty essentially by limiting the power of the government to abuse uh, liberty. Uh, 
Well, the constitutional compromise then that occurred during the New Deal um, uh, had the courts essentially turning away from these liberty protecting structural provisions and instead going to a protection of individual, uh, specific individual freedoms, uh, such as those that occur in the uh, Bill of Rights. Uh, and um, this constitutional compromise, I think, was really highlighted by Justice Stone in his Caroline Products footnote, uh, in which he suggested that the court, in fact, should uh, henceforward uh, rely and give heightened scrutiny to uh, personal, the personal rights contained within the Bill of Rights. Now, incidentally, these uh, didn't include economic or property rights. Uh, but he suggested that, and oftentimes it's been interpreted that what Justice Stone was, was meaning is that this is where the court really should focus because the court is good at this. This is the expertise of the court. Well, I argue in a way that this was uh, in, in not just a, a matter of expertise by the court, but the court really didn't have a choice because, after all, it had sort of taken these structural provisions, these structural protections to liberty, and essentially cast them out and abandoned them. In abandoning them, the only protection for individual liberty was going to lie with judicial review of specific individual rights. And so the court sort of had to do that. It then became, uh, it, it then came upon the court as the court was going to be the only protector of individual rights. We couldn't, we could no longer look at the structural um, protections under the Constitution. And in a sense, you had to have this, of course, because the power, the, the, uh, the power of the central government was growing uh, greatly. Uh, I outline in the, this in the book in which, following the New Deal, you have a power of its, uh, the central uh, government power was increasingly greatly. Well, um, they were not being constrained by the normal structural provisions, so it, it became even more important for the court then to come in and to exert uh, to, to protect individual rights through judicial review of, of specific uh, individual rights. Well, um, this is, uh, as I've argued, uh, for the judiciary to act as essentially the sole protector of liberty really contradicts the framers' view, uh, the framers' view in which they looked uh, um, in an opposite way to these structural provisions as the primary protection of liberty. And, in fact, these, these structural provisions would protect liberty uh, in all its forms, in a way. Now what we have is the court, you know, protecting specific liberties, a sort of specific liberties not only in the Bill of Rights, but that the court identifies through its sort of fundamental rights uh, jurisprudence, its, sub, its uh, substantive due process jurisprudence. But structural provision was going to protect individual rights in a more all-encompassing way, uh, if not relying on us to identify particular ones, but by limiting the power of government to infringe upon uh, uh, individual rights. And, of course, I think when you look at it, one criticism that can be made is in the court in doing so, by the court relying on itself to protect specific identified individual rights, the court has made mistakes at times. You could certainly argue that, and I'm sure Roger would argue that and has argued that on a number of uh, times in which, the, for, for instance, the court has abandoned the protection of economic or property rights. It's, it's picked some rights to protect but abandoned other rights that's, uh, to protect. Well, in addition to uh, boosting its power in terms of the individual rights area, the constitutional compromise of the New Deal also, as I argue, boosted uh, 
the judicial power in a way perhaps that we don't often think. Now, normally, um, the normal argument is that by retreating from these structural issues, these structural provisions, federalism and separation of powers, we think of the, the court as giving up power, as, as, as ceding power over to the, um, to the executive branch, uh, to the legislative branch. Um, I argue, though, that what's happened is that the growth of the administrative state has, in fact, increased the, the judiciary's power. And one of the re- ways it's uh, done that is because the court can review the, uh, the actions of administrative agencies um, in, in much different ways that it can review the actions of Congress. Uh, it can uh, exert itself more in terms of reviewing rules adopted by uh, agencies than it can, for instance, with laws regarding Congress. It has to be very deferential regarding the acts of Congress, but in in connection with the acts of administrative agencies, there's a host of ways in which the court can not only assert itself but intrude uh, into that process and, uh, according to many uh, critics, uh, substitute its own policy preferences for those of uh, of the particular agency. One might argue um, that perhaps the court is returning uh, its focus to this structural area, these structural provisions of the Constitution. In making that argument, uh, one could look to the Rehnquist Court, the Rehnquist Court's uh, federalism uh, revolution, for instance. Uh, and clearly during the Rehnquist area, this was an area in which the, uh, the, the court seemed to find its identity and to, uh, to exert itself and, and for which the court very much became known. Uh, the court sort of seemed to try to reacquaint uh, uh, or, or to revive the values of federalism, uh, namely that, uh, that a, a more balanced federalist uh, uh, political system uh, increases the accountability of government, uh, uh, the thought being that the, 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 the more closely government is to the constituencies, the more accountable it is. Uh, state governments, hence, can be more accountable uh, than, uh, than central government that um, state and local governments can be more responsive, that state and local governments can uh, be uh, sort of increasingly sensitive to the diversity uh, of our society uh, because of the diversity of the different uh, populations. And, of course, at the same time, you had President Clinton uh, stating that the era of big government was over, and this federalism revolution then uh, occurring at the court was also somewhat um, reflecting what was happening in the um, uh, political arena. And so the, the and, and people will argue, incidentally, over how um, effective this federalism revolution was or is, and that argument is certainly uh, powerful and, uh, uh, and is being waged right now. But I think even among many critics of the court, the, the federalism revolution was, was given so much press that, uh, that I think you have to recognize that it did do something. Uh, and certainly one of the things that it do- did was at least return this issue of structural provisions um, to the uh, legal and constitutional debate, um, something that had been really missing since 1937. And, and so you had the court then trying to revive federalism um, uh, for, through the Tenth Amendment in one way and through its Tenth Amendment decisions, uh, the New York versus United States case, the the Prince versus uh, U.S. Uh, case in which that involved the, the Brady Bill and, a, um, and the court de- uh, declaring unconstitutional law that required state officials to enforce a federal handgun regulatory program. Uh, you had the court uh, sort of trying to affirmatively cut back the power of the, uh, 
national government uh, through the Commerce Clause. Uh, you had the U.S. v. Morrison case that was involving the Violence Against Women Act, the U.S. v. Lopez uh, Act, uh, a case in which the U.S. v. Lopez case, a case in which the uh, court overturned a federal law that prohibited firearms within a thousand feet of school, finding that that act really infringed upon sort of local, a local matter of concern, not a national uh, uh, issue. Well, what I argue is that this federalism revolution, uh, regardless of how successful it may have been, was essentially a one-sided federalism revolution. Uh, It sought to strengthen state and local governments. It sought to uh, revive the power and the autonomy of state and local governments uh, uh, at the same time of trying to cut back the ability of the federal government to infringe uh, on those state and local governments. but in a way, it, it sort of rec- it, it ignored a flip side uh, of that uh, flip side issue or side of uh, federalism. Uh, because of that constitutional compromise back in, 19, uh, in, in the 1930s, the court had abandoned the structural features of the constitutions, and really only then did it, re- did it really strengthen and intensify its review of certain individual rights. Well, then the question maybe you ask is, what about the reverse? Once you then come back to uh, uh, enforcing these structural provisions, should the court then sort of lessen its activism uh, or its intensity in the area of uh, individual rights? Should it, in effect, in addition to achieving a kind of political federalism, also work to achieve a certain kind of rights federalism? Relying more on a strength in structural provisions, perhaps, should it mean uh, relying less on certain individual rights and and enforcing um, those? Well, of course, it didn't happen that way. The the Rehnquist court uh, perhaps achieved a certain degree of political federalism, but did not concentrate on rights federalism. In fact, uh, it continued to be as... uh, um, as, as vigilant, uh, if you will, or activist, depending on your, your framework, in its individual rights jurisprudence. And therefore, it confined its federalism revolution primarily to Congress then and not to decentralizing overall national power, including uh, judicial power. Uh, therefore, you had no decentralized uh, kind of rights federalism uh, and, uh, and the judicial power in that area, in the individual rights area, continued to be as, um, as powerful as it was before. Uh, I think the, the question then is, is it possible to return to the framers' conception of liberty, a, a, a conception in which these revived structural provisions can protect uh, or provide a protection for um, liberty? And I think uh, as, as one suggestion I would make is perhaps there's an increasing tendency to look upon uh, or to equate liberty with a more revived uh, federalism, uh, a, a, an instance in which uh, uh, people are more willing to let democratic communities sort of to shape their notions of liberty. Uh, and I think this, um, this approach is gaining favor, actually, among people and groups who were the, sort of the traditional uh, opponents of federalism. By, by this, I mean sort of if one might generally uh, describe them as... as uh, political liberals who for many decades following the, uh, the uh, New Deal were opposed to federalism and saw federalism um, as something that, uh, that uh, was um, antithetical to reform, that, that was a roadblock in terms of um, 
of government power and, and government solutions. Uh, uh, they tended to equate federalism with a, uh, a, a very sort of destructive states' rights idea, the states' rights uh, as being associated with the slavery debate. Um, uh, and what you have now, I think, is is these political liberals sort of looking to federalism and, and showing us at least a, a way of looking to federalism as perhaps a renewed or revived protector of liberty. You've seen it in terms of, 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 of many aspects, uh, particularly in the uh, issue of same-sex marriage. The, uh, the, the, the sort of the liberal camp has said, you know, this is an area in which we ought to let federalism rule. We ought to not look to uh, a national solution. We certainly should not look to the Supreme Court. Of course, they don't trust the Supreme Court on this. But uh, they are looking to that, not only into this area, uh, but um, uh, they're looking to it in terms of um, uh, other issues like uh, education, the No Child Left Behind Act, the environment and climate change uh, uh, regulation. And we find sort of a renewed emphasis on, um, on federalism and here. Uh, also, I think we find a renewed uh, uh, emphasis on federalism in the wake of the Kelo decision in terms of, of looking to uh, states and, and, and localities to protect economic and property rights to provide protections of the type that we aren't receiving at the um, federal level. Well, with that, uh, I want to um, certainly leave room for my uh, distinguished colleagues up here to make comments. So. Uh, uh, I'll uh, conclude and and uh... well, we certainly appreciate, especially when we start late, when the uh, the the prime speaker leaves time on the floor for the for the rest of our commentators. Uh, and I, in my rush to get up here, I neglected to introduce myself. Uh, for those of you, especially watching over the web or at some point in the future, uh, my name is Ilya Shapiro, and I'm a senior fellow in, in constitutional studies here at Cato. Uh, now, our first commentator uh, is Abe Crash, who is currently a partner at uh, Arnold & Porter, a uh, distinguished uh, D.C. law firm. His practice includes antitrust and trade regulation, government relations, and general litigation. Uh, professor Crash has also been an adjunct professor at Georgetown University Law School, or Law Center as it's called, for almost 20 years and has also taught at Yale and Wolfson College, Oxford. He's published uh, prolifically in the areas of constitutional law, criminal law, antitrust and trade regulation, legal ethics, and federal civil procedure. And uh, perhaps most interestingly, I first came across him a few months ago uh, through an interesting article that he wrote in The Washington Lawyer, which is the magazine of the D.C. Bar Association. So perhaps any of you are, uh, well, lawyers or, or Considering being a lawyer, you can talk to him afterwards about his view of how the profession is changing, completely unrelated to the topic today. But I'm uh, now pleased to present uh, Professor Crash. Thank you, Ilya. <laughs> Professor <clears throat> Gary has written a serious book. It reflects, I think, a clearly a grasp, knowledge of the Supreme Court's decisions, and clearly he shows a, he is conversant with the vast literature on the court. Having said that, I'm obliged to say that I disagree with the fundamental thesis he's expressed in this book. I disagree with most of the arguments he makes. 
I think his thesis, in a nutshell, and perhaps at the risk of oversimplifying it, is that we should look to the states for the protection of civil rights and civil liberties, that they are a, a, an institution which is a guardian of civil rights and civil liberties, and that the court, in imposing on the states various restrictions in uh, the last 30 or 40 years, has usurped its authority and has uh, improperly intruded on state powers or state rights. Now, in approaching this whole issue of federalism, I think it's important to begin by making several distinctions. First of all, it is one thing to say that it is desirable for a variety of reasons to say that the state's local government should regulate certain matters. One may say that because of the proximity of state officials to the, to the citizens of the state, to perhaps a greater knowledge of local conditions, to the fact they may be more responsive, that there is diversity in the country, that there are various arguments to be made in support of the point that some issues can better be handled at a state level than in the Nash, by the national government. That point of view has to be distinguished from the argument which is made that the Constitution, specifically the Tenth Amendment, and a restrictive view of the federal power, congressional power to regulate commerce under Article I, Section 8, that, that those provisions limit the national government when the national government thinks it's appropriate to regulate matters which somehow intrude on the states. <clears throat> the first point, whether you think it's desirable for the states to regulate something, that is a political question. The second question, whether you think that the Constitution imposes some limitations on the state, various limitations on the national government, uh, that is a constitutional question. I would agree that there are a number of situations, certainly, where it would be preferable as a matter of good government for the states to regulate various matters, for Congress to determine that that's appropriate. But I would disagree that it is appropriate for the Supreme Court, pursuant to a restrictive view of the commerce power or the Tenth Amendment, to say that Congress cannot regulate any sub regulate most of the subjects which the Congress regulates. There are very few instances where I think that would be appropriate. Now, there is a second distinction I think needs to be made at the outset. In his book, just uh, uh, Professor Gary refers to a famous remark by by Justice Brandeis that the states were lab could be viewed as laboratories where experimentation could proceed. I agree that the states are and can be laboratories for various types of social and economic experimentation, things with, for example, with respect to welfare, uh, with respect to education, uh, with respect to, uh, for example, prison reform, things of that sort. There's no question that the states have been and continue to be uh, laboratories for experimentation. But I do not think for a minute that Justice Brandeis had in mind when he said that the states should be laboratories for experiments, had in mind that the states would be experimenting with civil liberties and civil rights. Brandeis was a passionate, passionate believer in freedom of speech. For example, uh, look at his great, his magnificent concurring opinion in the Whitney case. And he also believed profoundly in the right of privacy. Uh, and the notion, I think he would not for a minute have uh, supported the notion that we could look to the states for the protection of individual rights and individual liberties. Now, there is a third uh, point I, I think I need to make at the outset. I agree that there are, that in certain respects, the structural provisions of the Constitution do provide a guarantee of liberties. 
When I say that, I have in mind the separation of powers and checks and balances. And I think when those are effectively executed, and they have not been, in, in my view, in the last few years, but when there is effective exercise of the separation of powers and checks and balances, that is an important protection of civil rights and civil liberties. But I do not think, I am not comfortable with the idea that one, and I have no confidence with the idea that one can look to the states for the protection of civil rights and civil liberties. Now, let me, let me, certainly if one consults history, one is very troubled if you try to defend the argument that one can look to the states for that. The truth and the blunt harsh truth is that the, the, the legacy of the states with respect, that is the pedigree of the states with respect to civil rights and civil liberties is a very badly tarnished pedigree. To begin with, as Professor Gary notes, at the time the Constitution was written, <coughs> The critical issue before, before the Federal Convention, certainly one of the fundamental issues, was slavery. Madison says so in so many words in, in, in June of, of, of 1787, and he records a speech in, the, in Farron's records. You see a, a speech which Madison made. And Madison said, the thing that divides us, he's speaking about the convention, the things that divides us is not whether we are big states or small states. The things that divides us is whether in some states there is slavery and other states there is not slavery. That was the central, uh, central issue. And the southern slaveholders, the states, the states where there was slavery, they opposed, they were resistant to a national government in various respects. Why? Because they were concerned that a national government dominated by the north, northern men, would interfere with slavery in the south and would obstruct the expansion of slavery into the territories. And from, from the time the Constitution was written until the Civil War, states' rights was the argument always made against the regulation of slavery. After the Civil War, during the, great, during the period of industrialization, states' rights were invoked as the argument against regulation of the various abuses which were connected with industrialization, with efforts, for example, to prevent the exploitation of women, with legislation with respect to child labor, safety measures. States' rights were invoked. There were, of course, arguments really it was arguments made by states' rights. There were arguments made by business, commercial interests. But states' rights were the arguments which were made to restrict the government from regulating those things. During the Great Depression, to which uh, Professor Gary has referred, when the country was experiencing the worst depression in our entire history, and the New Deal was desperately seeking to deal with it, and there were a number of things they did which were not wise in retrospect, but nevertheless, when they were seeking to deal with the depression, states' rights were invoked as an argument why the national government could not regulate the country's business, which so desperately needed to be regulated and dealt with if we were to come out of the depression. During the 1950s, when the country was faced with the question, what do we do about segregation? It was states' rights which was invoked as a basis for resisting decisions by the Supreme Court to desegregate the public schools and to desegregate uh, our, our uh, uh, other facilities. So that when one says one should look to the states for the protection of civil liberties, I say, just a minute, Let, what about history? What does history teach us in that respect? And it's certainly, I will say to you, and, and I think Professor Gary really acknowledges this, that in his book, that, that, that the states do not have a very respectable history in terms of being someone to look to for the protection of civil rights. Now, I am not persuaded by the argument that, that Professor Gary makes that there is a connection between the decisions of the Hughes Court during the mid-1930s 
with re and, and the decisions of the Supreme Court, say, beginning in the mid-1960s with respect to in the Gris beginning in the Griswold case with the right of privacy, the Griswold case involving the, the Connecticut statute which prohibited the sale of contraception uh, to, uh, to married people. Now, let's, let's, they are totally different issues. In the, the mid-1930s, the question before the court, the issue that, that, that was provoked uh, these, these decisions was, does the Congress have the power, pursuant to its power to regulate commerce, does it have the power to enact legislation to deal with the Depression? It was a question of congressional power, and the argument was made when regulating various things, for example, such as the steel industry, and that was the, the famous Jones and Laughlin case, which he has referred to, when they upheld the constitutionality of the Labor Relations Act. The argument was that's intruding on state power. So the issue was, does the Congress have the power to do various things. That was that aspect of federalism that was at issue. The questions of federalism which are at issue beginning with the mid-1960s, or if you say earlier with the Brown case, those are issues of a totally different aspect of federalism. They relate to questions concerning limitations on state power, pursuant, particularly pursuant to the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. And that's a totally different question. In other words, it's one thing to talk about are there limitations on state power, which was the issue in the mid-1930s. It was a vastly different issue for the court, for example, at the time during, during the mid-1960s and thereafter to talk about, about issues pertaining to state power. Now, there are, two things in, there are two things in Professor Gary's book which he doesn't talk about, which I would be very much interested in hearing what he has to say uh, as a thoughtful observer of the court. He doesn't talk about Brown against Board of Education. Now, in fact, the case is not even cited in the index to the book. Now, Brown against Board of Education is quintessentially a federalism case in many respects. Let me, let me just point, point out, they're, they're telling me my time is about up, and I'll finish in a minute. The, I kind of hate to do that just when you're about to criticize me. <laughs> <laughs> Brown, the, Brown, the Brown, well... I'll, I'll leave that for further for comment. But the, and secondly, he doesn't talk about the series of cases beginning with the in the, in the 19, beginning in the 1960s, in which the Supreme Court incorporated the Bill of Rights as against the states. That is held various provisions of the Bill of Rights were were uh, applied to the states pursuant to the Due Process Clause. I ask you this question: What advantage is there in saying that in state A? The state must appoint a lawyer to represent an indigent defendant, which the Supreme Court said they must do under the Due Process Clause in the Gideon case, and saying in State B you can disregard that right. What advantage is there in this country in saying that in one state the state can disregard the prohibitions against double jeopardy, and in another state they have to comply with it? I, we, we are one country, and I am strongly supportive of the court's decisions nationalizing the Bill of Rights and saying as to those rights, those must be, we are, that must be uniform throughout the country. Now, uh, I agree. I do agree that there are various areas where the states uh, have legitimate, appropriate, proper functions. But I do not think that one can look with any confidence upon the states to be protectors of civil liberties. Indeed, our whole history shows that the, why did the court intercede? in all these matters. It was because the states were not protecting civil liberties. They were not giving indigent defendants lawyers. They were violating the privilege against self-incrimination. They were violating the provision against double jeopardy. They were violating the provision against cruel and unusual punishment. And that's why the court interceded finally. And I think the court did so correctly. So uh, I'll save the rest of my time for further comment. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you.
Thank you, Professor Crash. And now, as Monty Python would say, now for something completely different. Um, Roger Pallon is the founder and director of Cato's Center for Constitutional Studies. He is also an adjunct professor uh, at Georgetown University, uh, also through the Fund for American Studies. Uh, before joining Cato, uh, Roger had five senior posts in the Reagan administration, including at the State and Justice Departments, and was a national fellow at Stanford's Hoover Institution. Uh, Roger has a, uh, got his bachelor's degree from Columbia, his master's and Ph.D. from the University of Chicago, and his J.D., um, because that wasn't uh, enough degrees up to that point, from George Washington University School of Law. And with that, I'd like to present my boss, Dr. Pallon. Well, thank you, uh, Ilya. And um, I want to join you uh, in welcoming um, um, both of our uh, speakers, Professor Gary and uh, Professor Crash, uh, to uh, the Cato Institute today. Uh, Ilya is quite correct. I'm going to uh, take a uh, shot at uh, Professor Gary's book from a rather different perspective than the one that you just heard. Um, but I want to begin uh, by commending Professor Gary uh, for writing this fine book, uh, which takes a wide sweep of constitutional theory and history. Uh, if the mark of a good book be that it uh, challenges you to think uh, in new and novel ways about issues that you may have thought about for a long time, this is a good book. Um, I'm not sure if I've yet grasped everything in the book. There are issues I'm still pondering, but after reading it, I've um, seen a number of issues in ways that I hadn't seen before, especially in that uh, tangled area that we call administrative law, which is, of course, the bread and butter of the D.C. Circuit, uh, with which we so often deal here today um, at uh, the Cato Institute. Um, but I'm not here simply to um, praise the book. I want to make a few critical comments as well. And I want to frame those comments um, with a few points of agreement, of which there are many in this book. First and most important, Professor Gary is absolutely right that the great divide in our constitutional history is marked by the New Deal's jurisprudence of 1937 and 1938 following President Roosevelt's infamous court-packing scheme. And second, he's right in contending that the court's so-called restraint at that time, I would suggest it is a form of activism to find powers that were nowhere there to be found in the Constitution, uh, notwithstanding what you've just heard from Professor Crash, and to ignore rights that were plainly there, such as property and contract. But it is understood by many today to have been a period of uh, judicial restraint. Why? Because it was a period when the court deferred to the political branches and to Congress in particular. And so <clears throat> he's right, I submit, in contending that the court's so-called restraint at that time, it's deferent to the, to the political branches, led to the judicial activism that eventually followed, especially during the era of the Warren and the Burger courts, but continuing right up to the present as well. And third, he's right, it seems to me, uh, that the court's failure to enforce the Constitution's structural principles, in particular federalism and separation of powers principles, is crucial to explaining so much uh, today that ends up in the courts and how so much in our lives turns on what the courts do. 
Where I have trouble with Professor Gary's argument, however, at least insofar as I understand it, is in his contention that those issues that today are in the courts, especially the rights issues, were meant to be left to the political branches, at least to a substantial degree, and to the states to determine. And here I share much of what Professor Crash has said by way of critique. In other words, yes, Federalism and the separation of powers were instituted by the framers to secure our freedom. That was the main theory that you read throughout the Federalist Papers. And yes, the framers' original design doubtless contemplated a lesser role for the courts than we see today. But implicit in that design, I believe, and especially after the ratification of the 14th Amendment, which Professor Crash mentioned as well, uh, we, it was a greater role for the courts than the framers may have comprehended uh, and contemplated at the outset. Indeed, one can think of the framers as being something of a work in progress. After all, we have the founders of 1776, who, over the 11-year period that ensued before the Constitution was drafted, learned a great deal about the play and practice of democracy at the state levels. They saw the tyranny of the majority in many areas, the seizure of property, the forgiveness of debts, the uh, kind of uh, majoritarian uh, uh, legislatures running amok. And they came to appreciate more keenly the role of an independent judiciary in uh, the uh, place of protecting our individual rights. Um, as nowhere more better evidence than Madison's remark that the judiciary would be an independent bulwark against the excesses of the legislative and executive branches. And then we see in Federalist 78 and after Hamilton talking about the courts and the role that the courts would play, which of course was made explicit in Marbury v. Madison, but was understood, it seems to me, well before that, even though the knowledge of the role of the courts was inchoate and was unfolding over time. Now, <clears throat> the the main point I want to develop then is that the framers did see a larger role, at least implicitly, for the courts as it has evolved over time. Um, but it's already enough to suggest that Professor Gary, by virtue of his critique of the court's New Deal jurisprudence, might be thought of as offering the conservative version of an argument that has come recently from several liberals, most prominently Dean Larry Kramer at Stanford, uh, whose recent book entitled The People Themselves offers a similar critique of the prominence of the courts today in our lives and calls likewise for returning matters to the people in their political capacities, although Professors Gary and Kramer uh, offer quite different substantive critiques of what the court has done over the past 70 years. Whether from the left or the right, however, the issue that is raised by these recent critiques of an activist court is how this decentralized rights federalism, as Professor Gary calls it, is to operate consistent with the Constitution's underlying principles, especially its normative principles. He says correctly, I believe, that the less the court has enforced the Constitution's structural principles, which were designed to secure our liberty, the more it has had to secure our rights directly, leading to the court's imposition of uniform national standards on a diverse nation. Thus, by reviving federalism and the separation of powers, we can reduce rights activism, he says. He even contends that freedom and majoritarianism are consistent, something that rings uncomfortably in the modern ear, 
and he distinguishes the court's modern privacy jurisprudence, ranging from Griswold's protection of the right to buy and use contraceptives, to Roe v. Wade's right to abortion, to Lawrence v. Texas's right to practice same-sex sodomy, which he believes can be protected by the court's structural guarantees. He distinguishes these from the court's minority rights jurisprudence, which by virtue of its not affecting the population as a whole, does require judicial protection. um, That's just about what I have left, three minutes. Not surprisingly, Professor Gary's argument in support of that distinction and the implications he draws from it rests in large part upon our federal system of dual sovereignty and state sovereignty. Thus, when people cannot agree on such contentious issues as those involved in the privacy cases, different states can offer different arrangements, and people can vote for those different arrangements if they prefer or vote with their feet, which is preferable, he believes, to having five unelected, non-responsible justices decide those issues for the whole nation. Now, there's a great deal to be said for what uh, that for that position, and a great deal has been said over the years for it, especially by modern conservatives. Due to the little time that I have, however, I've summarized a far more subtle argument the book offers, of course, but this is enough to enable me to raise two objections that will apply, I believe, even to the more complex version of Professor Gary's thesis. First, it is true that federalism offers choices that a unitary system does not, and by pitting power against power, it keeps both federal and state power in check to some extent, a point that Madison was keen to stress, especially in Federalist 10, Federalist 45, and Federalist 51. But voting with one's feet is not cost-free, and in fact, most people do not so vote if the intrusion on their rights may be bearable. Population shifts are driven more not entirely, but more, by economic regulations that drive businesses and hence jobs to other jurisdictions, not by discrete intrusions on rights. To be sure, there will be exceptions to that. People who find the intrusions on their rights will lead them to move, but mostly it's jobs that make people move, and therefore economic regulation that affects the shifts in employment. But second and more to the normative point, one needs to distinguish between those rights issues that involve line drawing, where reasonable people can have reasonable differences from those that do not. Abortion, for example, arguably involves close calls about when precisely during the nine-month gestation period abortion amounts to murder, and different states may well draw the line at different points. By contrast, Either one has a right to sell and use contraceptives or one does not. Either one has a right to uh, engage in same-sex sodomy or it is criminalized, as it was in Texas. There's no line drawing at issue. If there are such rights, as I believe there are, then a state that infringes them is violating one of the rights the Ninth Amendment tells us is, quote, retained by the people. Professor Gary reads that amendment as a mere rule of construction, however, which is not, I submit, the way the framers understood it. When he turns from federalism to the separation of powers in the modern administrative state, however, Professor Gary develops points that are genuinely insightful. The conventional view, he says, is that by ignoring the non-delegation doctrine 
which would keep legislative power in the legislative branch under Article One's pronouncement that all legislative power herein granted shall be vested in a Congress and allows that power to be delegated and exercised by the executive branch, the court has enhanced the power of what has come to be called the imperial presidency. Not so fast, Professor Gary says. It is true that ignoring the non-delegation doctrine has put not only legislative but executive and judicial power in the hands of unelected bureaucrats in the administrative agencies, but that has led ineluctably to enhanced judicial power as well, for it was only a matter of time before all those regulations worked their way to the courts, with the courts expanding justiciability and narrowing limits and standards of judicial review. With their deference, for example, they came to ignore the arbitrary and capricious standard and substitute the hard-look doctrine and therefore get more deeply and often involved in the kind of administrative uh, cases that heretofore they did not get involved in. Tangled and turgid as this area of our modern law is, it is everywhere today, and one cannot but profit from reading Professor Gary's insights in this area because he is on to something when he claims that the court's restraint in the 30s to allow for governmental expertise the progressives had long championed to be foisted upon us was the precursor and precondition for the court's activism thereafter. But here, too, Um, Is the answer less judicial intrusion? I should think that when all three functions, legislative, executive, and judicial, are in a single branch, that that especially is when we would want heightened judicial scrutiny. Let me conclude, however, with a simpler explanation for the prominence today of the judicial state, if I may put it that way. It did indeed begin with the judicial restraint, so-called, of the New Deal court. But what that restraint and the the attendant deference allowed was a surfeit of legislation, federal, state, and local, which had to intrude on our rights to be free from such regulation. And that, far more simply, is why the courts today are so deeply involved in sorting out the ensuing mess. Thank you. Before we go to Q&A, uh, Professor Gary, uh, do you want to respond to the critiques? Thank you. I was hoping my response would be good enough by handing those uh, time limit cards to the uh, speakers here. I never realized how, how, uh, what, a, what a strategic device that could be. I, to silence one's critics, simply give them, you know, time is up. Uh, I perhaps shouldn't have been the one <laughs> handing the cards, but uh, I do appreciate the comments. Um, uh, in a way, I was almost wishing that I'd had these comments before I wrote the book, uh, but then I probably would never have written the book uh, had I, I had the comments and realized uh, all the different uh, problems that uh, I had to work through. But I appreciate them, and I think many of the comments are, are very well uh, placed. Let me begin with uh, my uh, uh, reactions to uh, comments made by uh, Professor Crash. I don't think the argument I intended to make was necessarily that we should look to the states to protect liberty as if the states would be the only protection there of liberty. Uh, uh, 
I, what I do is I try to argue that we ought to look to structural provisions perhaps more than we do. Clearly, the court does have a role. The court does have a role. The, the, the Bill of Rights are in the Constitution. The court uh, is charged with enforcing those Bill of Rights. Uh, I would not say that we would look to the states primarily to protect liberty. I think my argument is, is that we ought to try to give more life to those structural provisions in certain ways, uh, not in ways that directly, if the court's charged with the, uh, uh, upholding the First Amendment, the court must do that. But there are obviously sort of areas of leeway. These leeway, these areas have come in, into play, for, in, for instance, in the court's substantive due process areas, in which the court is, is, is reading into the Constitution um, fundamental rights. There's clearly, a, there's clearly a sort of a leeway there. Where, where do we give the leeway? Do we give it to the court to, disorder, to, to craft out these, um, uh, these fundamental rights and to protect liberty through a fundamental rights kind of jurisprudence? Or do we try to at least give more life to the, uh, to the structural provisions and rely on that perhaps more to protect um, uh, individual freedom? I do argue that uh, uh, and make this argument from the, from the framers that, the, that I believe that the framers did look to the democratic process uh, as something that is, was, was um, uh, in harmony with the protection of liberty. I, I think that that notion has... Um, has been hurt in the way by the way the court has taken on to protect liberty, uh, crafting it almost as if if only the court, only an undemocratic institution can protect liberty. That's the only area in which we can find that protection of liberty. Um, I disagree, and I, I'd, I'd argue that we can find that that, uh, that that protection of liberty throughout the scheme of the um, Constitution. In general, I wouldn't say that the state should be laboratories for um, civil uh, rights and liberties, not in the way that if they're liberties that are uh, identified within the Constitution, but I do think in a way that the states have, uh, in many ways, as Professor Crash noted, states have had an abysmal record. Uh, however, I also think the national government's had an abysmal record, too, when you look at the, the, uh, the, the Cold War decade and the... Um, the um, uh, uh, congressional uh, restrictions against uh, 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 dissident uh, communist speech. Uh, when you take a look at the Japanese-American internment, you can look at a number of issues there in which the national government hasn't had the best uh, area or record either. And I think there's ways in which we can actually look at the states and see that perhaps they have had a better record than we sometimes give them. Uh, we look at the Supreme Court's uh, uh, decision Roe versus Wade, what we sometimes uh, don't uh, look at is the fact that the states were largely in a trend of liberalizing their own laws on this particular area, and the states were moving, I think, significantly in this area prior to the Supreme Court's uh, what I'd call sort of nationalizing decision. Likewise, in the area of, of poll tax, uh, there the, the court came down with a decision, but the states were moving, and were moving uh, significantly uh, in that area. Uh, I try to outline in the book oftentimes and try to draw a distinction between federalism and states' rights. I don't think federalism is states' rights. Federalism means a balanced um, system of dual sovereignty, uh, federal authority granted to, to the federal government, authority granted to state governments. I think this was largely put out of balance after the um, New Deal. But I do not argue that federalism is states' rights in which we look primarily to the states because clearly the national government does have a role within our um, constitutional scheme uh, and that uh, states' rights is oftentimes a distortion 
of federalism because what it looks at is, is somehow giving primary uh, or perhaps too much authority uh, to the uh, particular states. Um, well, with respect to the um, uh, comments uh, offered by Dr. Pilon, um, I'm, I'm not going to even try to get into the Ninth Amendment. I have um, uh, been privileged to uh, debate, if debate can even be a word I can use with him on the Ninth Amendment. Um, uh, I, I have wanted to learn more about the Ninth Amendment. Uh, he is an expert in this area. Uh, there's not much I can say. I appreciate his comments upon the, uh, uh, the uh, administrative law uh, provisions of this book, particularly there's, since there's a student, a former uh, administrative law student of mine sitting in the um, uh, audience. Perhaps, uh, perhaps now he'll think that maybe I wasn't that far off uh, base in class uh, as it was. Uh, but he does, uh, Dr. Pilon does make very many uh, good, uh, uh, good comments, good criticisms, I think. Um, the Supreme Court, again, uh, to, 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 um, to repeat, does have a role and does have a role in our protection of, of um, liberty. Uh, what I guess I argue, again, is that... Um, uh, in this kind of gray area, the gray area that often comes up in, in terms of the fundamental rights, uh, jurisprudence, substantive due process, uh, privacy, perhaps the court should be more mindful of a more decentralized liberty approach in those particular areas, uh, in, in those uh, ways to try to let the more structural provisions in the democratic process sort of have a little bit more life in a way, and that if one is going to pick one or the other. Do you nationalize the area or do you leave it be to the political process? Uh, my argument would be that in those areas, in those sort of um, unenumerated ways, that one's first impulse is to give it to the uh, structural provisions of the Constitution and to try to um, uh, let that be. Uh, I, I think that uh, in, in some ways, as I mentioned in the book, the, the court has been sort of over, has over-nationalized this area, particularly I argue in the area of the Establishment Clause, in which the court has issued a kind of nationalized type of, um, and I see the card, my, my uh, time limit card is just to come up, so I'm going to preempt that. Uh, and, um, uh, well, I think that I, I've made my points good enough, and I, I thank the um, uh, I thank uh, the Cato Institute very much for providing me this opportunity and for uh, Dr. Pilon and, and uh, Professor Crash uh, to give me uh, uh, very insightful comments. Thank you. Okay, we'll now move to questions. And rather than uh, indulging the moderator's want to ask the first one, I'll reserve mine and, and ask these gentlemen later. Um, so please wait for the microphone. Uh, we have these three rules. Please, please wait for the microphone. Identify yourself in any affiliation and actually ask a question. Sir. Organization is the PBGC. My question is, there is a the usual uh, libertarian or, or, or conservative, if one may label it, interpretation is that all was well and good prior to 1937. But there is a, a more extreme, in my opinion, libertarian strand that from Justice Marshall himself, the court got it wrong and usurped federalism um, despite the clear intent. So my question to, I guess, Mr. Gary and to everyone else is, was Justice Marshall the first New Deal justice on the court or was everything well and, and uh, spanking good until 1937? Patrick? Well, um 
I don't really want to make the argument that everything was well and good up until 1937. Uh, uh, you know, I'm a, an academic and an author, which means that nothing was ever well and good. Um, so um, I, I don't want to make that argument. Uh, and with respect to your point upon Justice Marshall, I think that's very, uh, a very valid point, is that uh, uh, you have a justice there that, was, uh, that, that looked very much to... Uh, uh, creating and accommodating nationalized power, uh, I, I think you could make that argument. However, of course, his uh, task there, of course, was to implement this constitution, this new constitution uh, in which the uh, national government was much stronger than uh, it had been under the Articles of Confederation. Um, so uh, I think you can make the argument, but I guess I'm not, I, I wouldn't really feel myself prepared to sort of you know, go into the um, details of that argument. I'll pass that along to my colleagues here. Um, one, uh, there has never been a golden age. Uh, there have been ages that have been better than others. Two, judicial review um, was not unknown uh, at the time of the founding. Indeed, uh, one can go back in the English tradition and find, for example, uh, Lord Cook's decision in Dr. Bonham's case in 1610, as a prime example of judicial review based upon a higher law notion. Uh, and it is discussed, of course, in Federalist 78 and thereafter. So, um, no, Marshall was just uh, um, making explicit what was clearly there as implicit. Uh, and then it becomes a question of what are the standards for judicial review. And then it becomes a question of what does the Constitution actually say? And what are the background uh, considerations such as the common law background of the Constitution? My own view is that of all the chief justices of the Supreme Court, Justice Marshall was the greatest. He was, you must remember, he had fought in the Revolutionary War. He had served in the, con the first in the Congress. He'd been the Secretary of State. He believed passionately that we should have a country. And his great decisions, for example, the great decision in Gibbons against Ogden, the decision in McCulloch against Maryland. Those were decisions reflecting the views of the Federalists and his views that we are a country. And that what throughout his lifetime, all of his decisions reflected a philosophy and desire to do that. I believe Marshall has been much misunderstood. You must remember that most of the time that he served on the court, he was the, the majority of the justices were from an opposition party. They were from the Jeffersonians. Uh, and and yet and and Marshall it's quite clear that Marshall frequently disagreed with the decisions of the court, so that uh, he, he, it, it's it's as it's as if he was he was a Democrat on a court dominated by Republicans. Think of it that way. And yet most of his life was he fought a rearguard battle in many ways to preserve what I think he believed was the understanding of the draftsman of the Constitution, which was to create a, a country. So I. I, I'm, 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 I respect him enormously, and I, I think we owe a gr very great deal to him. Sir. Dennis Coyle from Catholic University. Can you clarify, Professor Gary, where you stand on the enforcement of rights through the 14th Amendment? Specifically, corporation, is that illegitimate? Uh, substantive due process, unenumerated rights, implied in 14th. Is that illegitimate? Privileges and immunities clause? Is there anything there? If all that is bad, are we simply left with trusting to state constitutions for the enforcement of rights against state actions? 
Uh, no, I don't think incorporation is is bad. Um, uh, and and uh, I think, as Dr. Pilon noted, that you, that you do have to read um, in. I mean, the, 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 in terms of the constitutional meaning, you have to read it both at the time of the uh, the framing and the time of the ratification of the Fourteenth Amendment. Uh, what I focus uh, primarily on in, in terms of um, my arguments is, uh, for instance, uh, the substantive due process approach, uh, the, uh, the fundamental rights approach. I, I, my argument there is that in, that in those respects, the court is overstepping its bounds in terms of, of uh, 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 choosing fundamental rights. Uh, if you look at, the, uh, for instance, the area of privacy, you know, the, the court um, uh, defines privacy as uh, those choices sort of very key to uh, an individual's uh, dignity and, and meaning and autonomy, and yet has defined uh, and has picked out just sort of one uh, aspect of that autonomy, namely uh, sexual freedom. Uh, why is it, uh, one could ask, why is that the, the primary uh, defining feature of individual autonomy and dignity? Uh, you could ask a room full of people here, what is it that gives you uh, most meaning as human beings, and I'm, I'm going to guess we're going to have a great array of, of different answers on that. And so I think that uh, displays how the court sort of by uh, sort of what is the logic of picking that, and, um, uh, uh, and I criticize that, um, uh, that approach in terms of the court sort of picking out a, a particular ident identifiable freedom rather than perhaps letting that era or that area or that issue sort of evolve out of the political process. I think particularly in terms of privacy, privacy is a very interesting issue. Many of our, our rights are what we would call minority rights, and the courts uh, uh, need to be involved in terms of uh, enforcing those. But privacy is an interest that everyone shares, uh, regardless, of, regardless of gender or race. It's, a private, it's an interest that, that, that everyone shares and that the democratic community sort of shares together, and I think it's an issue that could very well be left to the political process. Uh, if I may, uh, I quite agree that the court's selective protection of rights and its focus on privacy to the exclusion, for example, of economic liberty leaves us wanting to say that the court is uh, less than is playing fast and loose with the Constitution. But I do think to return to um, um, uh, Professor Coyle's uh, question that the 14th Amendment did get something of a short shrift in the book, um, Professor uh, uh, Kerry. The um, 14th Amendment fundamentally changed federalism arrangements in the country by providing for the first time federal remedies against state violations of our rights. Remember, the Bill of Rights did not apply against the federal government. That was decided in the city of Baltimore decision of 1833. Uh, with the uh, enactment and uh, ratification of the 14th Amendment, and especially with Section 1 of the amendment and the Privileges or Immunities Clause, then we had the whole of the Bill of Rights and, indeed, natural rights and common law rights applicable against the states so that it provided a great deal more for courts to do because you look at the history of the 14th Amendment and you will see that the first two versions were not self-executing. It was only in the third version that finally got passed and ratified that we have the self-executing version, and that's what opened the door eventually to the kind of litigation that we have today. My regret is that after Caroline Product's footnote four, it was limited only to 
discrete and insular minorities, certain, quote, fundamental rights, and by implication what was excluded was the rights that we exercise in, quote, um, economic relationships, ordinary economic relationships. And it seems to me that all rights are fundamental and that this distinction from footnote four between non-fundamental and fundamental rights is bogus. It was written from whole cloth to make the world safe for the New Deal. Not to um, hold my cards too close to the vest. Um, first of all, I do not think that the 1937 cases stretched the powers of Congress. If anything, I think there was an, a return to what was the original understanding. If you read Gibbons against Ogden carefully, you will see that Marshall thought the power of Congress to regulate commerce was comprehensive. He says in that case, when the argument was made that, it, that the commerce power didn't extend to navigation, he said everybody in the country understood that it did. And he says that the power of Congress, the Commerce Clause, extends to many objects. Many objects is many more than buying and selling a navigation. I think he meant a comprehensive power to regulate the, all the gainful activity of the country, the, com the commerce of the country. That's point one. As to the 14th Amendment, I happen to agree basically with Justice Black's dissent in Adamson against California that the Privileges and Immunities Clause, the 14th Amendment, was designed to make good as against the states all of the Bill of Rights. After all, the purpose of the 14th Amendment was to give the, st the slaves the status of citizens. And if the states were free to disregard, as they were under Barron against Baltimore, all of the rights of the Bill of Rights, the slaves would not have accomplished, you wouldn't have accomplished very much. And I do not agree, and I think the court got very badly off track in the Slaughterhouse case when it didn't give the Privileges and Immunities Clause, I think the original understanding was designed to have. Now, so there is one other point I think needs to be made here. When you talk about the court and substantive due process, what's happened, I think the truth is a lot of the argument gets down to Roe against Wade because the, there are only a handful of cases, really, if you look at them, which the court has decided sub, there's a substantive right of due process. I happen to think Roe against Wade was a poorly reasoned case as a matter of constitutional law. It was not well-reasoned. And I think a very respectable argument could be made that this matter should be left, should have been left sh to the states. Once it was decided that way, I happen to think probably the court was probably right in the Casey decision in saying that the legitimacy of the court would have been affected if it had retreated from it. But I, I, that's, that's certainly reasonable people can disagree. Would the world end if Roe against Wade were overturned? I don't think so. I do think this. I think you would have a problem for women of limited means, poor women, in states which had very restrictive abortion statutes. And how that would be dealt with, I'm not sure. But I think one has to get a perspective about, about the court's role in all this. The truth is, if you look at, the, for example, the great issues before the country right now, what are they? The war against Iraq, the economy, taxation, health care. The Supreme Court has almost nothing to do with most of those issues, or very peripherally, really. And the, the, it's all, they're, they're, all, they're only tangentially involved. And the, and, and the substantive due process cases, which as created a great deal of, you know, intellectual excitement among those who caught the condescending who follow the court. If you really look at the list of those cases, they're really relatively a small number. Now, I admit they are subjects about which many of us feel quite deeply and passionately, but you have to get a bit of perspective about this. And, uh, uh, well, let me, let me stop there. Roger, did you want to jump in no, on no, privileges? No, okay. Um, maybe one more question. Good. Seeing none. Um, uh, and I will jump in. Uh, 
just one point. I, 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 I quite, quite concur with the, the second point that, uh, that um, Professor Crash just made. But the first, uh, Gibbons v. Ogden, in the first part of Gibbons v. Ogden, Marshall did s- discuss um, what it is entailed in interpreting a constitution. And he said that clauses, as well as the constitution itself, must be interpreted functionally. And it seems to me that when you interpret the Commerce Clause functionally, it was written to ensure the free flow of goods and services among the states in light of the tariffs and other protectionist measures that states were erecting under the Articles of Confederation, leading to the breakdown of free trade among the states. Then you will see that the Commerce Clause with in in the hands of the 37 court in Jones and Lachlan was going way beyond what the whole purpose of the clause was. It was not to authorize Congress to regulate anything and everything under the sun for any reason it wanted, but rather to regulate in such a way as would ensure free trade among the states. Okay. Thank you, Roger. And thank you uh, to all of our uh, panelists, before before we uh, break, I want to mention three things. Um, so just some some uh, publications that we have in, in constitutional studies at Cato. Uh, the, the D.C. gun case yesterday, Heller. There's a podcast that my colleague Bob Levy put out uh, also yesterday and an amicus brief that Cato filed. Uh, in the case that uh, was argued today, Chamber of Commerce versus Brown, which is a labor law and First Amendment case, I have a podcast today and also an amicus brief that you can download and read. Um, and for those of you who are interested in, in continuing this uh, debate about uh, judicial activism, fundamental rights, uh, th- these sorts of very uh, thick uh, issues, there's going to be, I'll put in a plug for an, another similar event that I'm moderating on Monday at 5 at George Mason Law School. Similarly, there'll be a conservative, libertarian, and liberta- uh, liberal perspective presented uh, that's co-hosted by the Federal Society and the American Constitution Society. With that, I invite all of you to continue the debate uh, upstairs where we have lunch. And again, uh, thank you very much and to all our visitors. Oh, and the book is available for sale upstairs. Thank you. Thank you.